0: Habakkuk chapter number 2, I want to read just the first four verses of this chapter, and then I want us to notice something, and we'll begin dig into our lesson tonight. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 1, the Bible says, I will stand upon my watch, and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he, what the Lord, will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me, and said, Write the vision, and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Thank you. You can be seated. That last phrase there here in Habakkuk 2, four, the just shall live, by his faith, becomes one of the paramount phrases in the entirety of Scripture. It is so important that God on three other occasions will take note of this phrase and it will be used as sort of a springboard to dive uh, dive into deep theological truths for the life of believers. Uh, Habakkuk serves as sort of a template for this truth, but we find this phrase again three other times in Scripture. The first is in Romans chapter number 1. It says in verse 16 of that chapter, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's used again in the book of Galatians chapter number 3, Verse number 11 says, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. And then a third time in Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 38 says, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. You know, anytime God says something once, that's enough to gain our attention. That ought to cause us a, a an attitude of, of attentiveness and reverence to the truth that is being disclosed. But when God goes out of His way to on four occasions echo the same phrase, the same sentiment, the same thought, God is not merely placing an emphasis. He is laying a bedrock for a perspective, theologically speaking, regarding how we interact with the Lord. One of the absolute fundamental truths of uh, Bible Christianity is that the premise and the basis of our relationship with God is based on faith. What do we mean when we say faith? There's a lot of different definitions of faith, but I would probably define it this way. Faith is the effectual dependence upon God's Word. In other words, it is listening to what God says, taking it as truth, and then acting in accordance with His Word. It's to believe His Word, and that belief will naturally produce a certain response if it's genuine and sincere in our life. The Bible declares in no uncertain terms that this is the way that God desires to be approached unto. It's interesting, when you study New Testament quotations of Old Testament passages, the way that it sheds light upon the various things that, that God is dealing with. And I began to think about this phrase, the just shall live by faith. And I want to give you four different lessons this week. And I'll go ahead and tell you what we'll talk about in each of them. In Habakkuk 2, verses 1 through 4, that we've read tonight as our text, we're going to talk about the principle of faith as a, as a broad term. Uh, there, that we read in Romans chapter number 1, verses 16 and 17, we're going to talk about the pardon of faith. You know, we always associate faith with the matter of salvation, and that's not inappropriate, because we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and calling upon His name that we are saved. But you know, your faith did not cease, I hope this is true of you, your faith did not cease when you got saved, your faith began when you got saved. That was not the end of your relationship with God or your interaction with faith, but that was the, the, the initial beginning of that relationship. And so, uh, Paul talks about in Romans the pardon of faith, or faith as being the grounds upon which a man is justified before God. In Galatians chapter number 3, and I didn't read everything I wanted to about it. In fact, I'll go ahead and read it now, give you a little more context to it. It'll take me a moment to read because I want to read 11 verses here. But in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is dealing with the church at Galatia and there were certain Judaizers. Now, you might say, well, what's a Judaizer? A Judaizer was somebody that was trying to proselyte people to Old Testament Judaistic worship. And you say, well, preacher, you know, what's wrong with that? Well, Calvary's, what's wrong with that? We've moved beyond that. We've moved past it. I like a friend of mine made this statement, said, when Jesus said it is finished, Judaism became a cult. And that's true. Christ is the end of righteousness to them that believe or the uh, end of the law and righteousness to them that believe God's not interested in Old Testament worship anymore. It doesn't impress him, doesn't intrigue him in any way, shape, fashion or form. Uh, Christ is, is is the sum and substance of our relationship with God. So these Judaizers had come to the church at Galatia and they had began to preach two heresies to the church there. The first was that a person had to be circumcised to be saved. In other words, they had to be initiated into Jewish worship through the rite of circumcision. The second heresy that the Judaizers were promoting in that church was that a person had to keep the law to continue to be saved. Or we might add a little nuance to that and say it this way. They proclaimed that keeping the law made a person better saved, made them a better Christian. And the book of Galatians is really focused on refuting these two theological errors. Paul writes to that little church and he says in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? He says, This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. In other words, how did God gain an entrance into your life? Was it by the law? No, it wasn't. It was by faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? And every person that's been born again uh, was born of the Spirit of God. He says, you've begun in the Spirit. Are ye now made perfect by the flesh, by the energies of your, of your own strength and your own works? He says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He says, you know, you were othered by the world because you believed in Jesus Christ. Why was that? If you did not need to believe on Him to be saved. And if not, faith was the very basis of your relationship.'" He says, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, that's us, amen, that's me, (laughs) would justify the heathen through faith, Preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them." But that no man is justified in the law by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. So you see, in the broader context, and really in the context, of the entirety of the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with uh, the practice of faith. Faith being the working principle of our life as believers. I got news for you, man. Uh, When you got saved, you didn't graduate from faith. You then entered an entire life of walking by faith. Now, let me say I'm thankful that uh, my relationship with God, my salvation, I'm glad that my justification was secured at the moment of salvation. Because it was not my faith that saved me, it was Christ that saved me. But my faith was the means of me approaching unto God through Jesus Christ. There have certainly been moments of weakness and moments of confusion in my life. Times when I probably was not trusting in God the way that I should have been. Certainly that's true, and I'm sure it's true of you as well. My salvation has never been in question. However, it would be naive to suggest that as a saved individual, God's never going to ask us to walk by faith. It is directly in the face of a uh, of bold declared scripture. Uh, Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. A lot of Christians get real twisted up on God when they're put in a position where they've got to trust him. They think something has broken down about their Christianity. But the fact is, if we can live as a Christian and never have to trust him, then our Christianity has broken down. Then it has ceased to function the way that God has designed it. And so Galatians is focused on the practice of faith and living by faith and then in hebrews chapter 10 let me read a few more verses to give some context to it the bible says in hebrews 10 32 but call to remembrance now let me remind you paul is writing to jewish individuals that have believed on christ they have uh, put the works of the law behind them believed on jesus christ for salvation and he says this but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great fight of afflictions Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. He said, when you turned from the law to the Lord, everybody turned their back on you. Don't you remember those days? He says, not only that, you had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath a great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So what's Paul dealing with there in Hebrews chapter 10? He's talking about the great feats of faith that were performed in their life as they trusted God. You know, it's no small thing to turn your back on your whole life, on your whole family. And you say, well, preacher, you know, surely they did not turn their back. Well, when you get saved, there's some things you won't have to turn your back on because they'll turn their back on you. And these people that have believed on the Lord, they had lost their families, they had lost their community, they had lost everything in their life. And Paul says, don't you remember... Uh, How that God buoyed you in those days and sustained you in those days. How that you, by faith, walked with Him and, and God was your strength, He was your staff and your shield. Don't you remember those days? He's talking about the great things they had achieved by placing their faith in the Lord. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that when you get to verse 39 of Hebrews chapter number 10, you're knocking on the door of Hebrews 11. And Paul will go on to discuss all the great, remarkable things that were done through faith In the Old Testament. So what is he talking about in Hebrews chapter 10 when he invokes this Old Testament passage, the just shall live by faith? Well, he is talking about the power of faith. How that faith has the means to move mountains. How that faith has the ability not just to make us crawl, but to make us run with the Lord. To make us mount up on eagles' wings and God to do remarkable things in our lives. In other words, when we look at these three passages, New Testament Scriptures, As commentators have for time immemorial noticed about them, they in many ways compartmentalize the phrase, the just shall live by faith, and sum it up in a nutshell itself. For instance, the emphasis in Romans is that the just shall live by faith. The justifying faith that we experience when we come to Jesus Christ. The only way for man to be justified, made right with God, is by approaching unto him in faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And then in Galatians, The emphasis is not on the first two words, but the second two. It's the just shall live by faith. In other words, that it's not just we get saved by faith, but then we should continue to live by faith and walk with God. And then in Hebrews, the emphasis is on the last two words. The just shall live by faith. In other words, that faith has an incredible and intrinsic power when it's placed in the Lord to do great things for Him. Now, I don't know about you. I'm the type of person I like when I see something interesting that fascinates me. I've been like this since I was a child. If I when I was a little child, if I saw a toy and I was interested in it, I wanted to take it apart. Would you ever like that? I, I wanted to find a screwdriver and start taking it apart. I wanted to see how it worked. <laughs> I ain't no telling how many uh, toys I broke and how many, uh, you know, little teeny tiny, you know, nuts and bolts and screws wound up in my daddy's foot growing up because I was too curious, and wanted to take these things apart. I like to reverse engineer them, in other words. I wanted to look at the finished product and then go backwards and ask myself, how did we get there? As I said, there is not always the deepest connection between the context of an Old Testament passage uh, that is quoted and, and its New Testament counterpart. But I find when I look at the book of Habakkuk, that we can almost reverse engineer the theological truth given in these three New Testament passages. And what we find in Habakkuk chapter 2, in the declaration of this principle of faith that will become a driving force in the life of the people of God, is that in many ways it presents in germ form the very truths that Paul will dive into in the New Testament. We could say it this way, What Paul saw under the microscope, Habakkuk saw through the telescope. He saw it in a broad sense. And when we look at Habakkuk's experience and his journey of resting in the Lord in the book of Habakkuk, we find that he really touches on each of these New Testament truths that will later on be dealt with in detail. Now, I'll tell you tomorrow, by the Lord's help, we'll look at the passage in Romans, and then Wednesday, we'll look at the passage in Galatians, and then Thursday, we'll look at the passage in Hebrews. But tonight, what I want to do is look at all three of them through the lens of Habakkuk's experience. I've taught through Habakkuk on several occasions, and I'm going to try to refrain from getting too detailed about Habakkuk's experiences, but there's not a lot we really know about him as an individual. We know about the time that he lived in. He lived in uh, prior to the days of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, We know uh, he was contemporary with certain other prophets that were alive at that time, ministering at that time. We know he seemed to be a prophet in the land of Judah. Uh, And we know there's not a lot else that's really said about him. But what we learn from reading the book of Habakkuk is that he is a prophet in crisis the book of habakkuk is really a book that is focused on one man's crisis of faith now i don't like that term it's sort of a it's sort of a you know gnostic term but but that really is how we'd characterize what he's experiencing now i want you to notice three things here in the book of habakkuk and then we'll be done tonight let's begin in chapter number 1 it'll help frame a little bit of what habakkuk is experiencing. Now remember, the first thought we have is looking at the pardon of faith that Paul will deal with in detail in Romans chapter number 1, and really the the first four chapters of the book of Romans, but we find it in germ form here in Habakkuk's experience in Habakkuk chapter number 1. Let's begin at verse number 1, and uh, I'll tell you what, we'll read all the way down to verse number 12, then we'll stop there. The Bible says, the burden which Habakkuk, the prophet did see. And that's very familiar Old Testament phrasing. Often the visions that God gave them would be characterized as burdens. And certainly Habakkuk's was a burden. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence. And thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity? And cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there... Are they, are there are that raise up strife and contention? Therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceeded. Sounds like he's been reading the newspaper, don't it? He says in verse five, behold ye, and this is the Lord answering him back, behold ye among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. Now, we don't use that terminology a lot, but that's a name synonymous with the Babylonians. If you've studied in your Bible, in the book of Daniel particularly, about the Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, God says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from afar. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Habakkuk then picks up the pen again, and this is what he says in response to it. Art, not, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Now, when we read that, I'll be honest with you, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, preacher, that's interesting, but what in the world does that have to do with Romans chapter number 1? What does that have to do with Paul's declaration about the gospel of Jesus Christ being the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Well, here's the similarity. Habakkuk's great struggle was he saw and was troubled by the sin problem of the world in verses 1 through 4. You see, Romans chapter number 1 is largely occupied with global sin. You can go through and and it describes the journey of mankind from having a true understanding and enlightenment concerning who God is to degrading themselves and and defiling themselves through self-worship and through lust and through iniquity to the point that they darken their minds and their hearts and they're doing that which is unnatural and that which God has forbid man to do so much so that they worship the creature more than the creator. You see, the difference is Paul may have shined a bigger light, but they were both looking in the same corner of society. And Habakkuk's bothered because he knows God is a holy God, but he sees wicked men prevailing and thriving in society. There's so many phrases in these verses that just uh, strike my heart. And and they just, like I said, they sound like they came out of today's newspaper. He says in, in verse number three, why dost thou show me iniquity? Man, I'll tell you, ungodliness is on parade. Unrighteousness is flaunted. I mean, there was a time people at least had the decency to be embarrassed. But we now live in a society where unrighteousness is flaunted in the face of God and in defiance of His Word. He says, cause me to behold grievance. And we live in a grieved society. We live in a troubled society. A society that is fraught with, with difficulty, suffering and trouble. He says, for spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. I don't know that I've ever seen a time in society that there is as much strife and contention. I understand I'm a young person, but you can go back through the history books, man, and you won't find very many times throughout human history where people were at each other's throats the way they are today. Everybody's got a chip on their shoulder. Everybody's got Some kind of uh, of cause they're ready to fight and die over and and divide from their friends and family and neighbors over. And Habakkuk looks around he says, it's just like everything's boiling and roiling and getting ready to fall apart. He talks about the systemic corruption that was present in society that day. He says in verse 4, and this I think is a fit description of our state in America today. He says, therefore, the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. I always laugh because... If you pay attention to the news, depending on which side of news you're reading, if if you're reading the side of the news that's in opposition to whatever the current sitting president uh, is doing, it's always, oh, they've got him now, you know? If you look at the news headline, oh boy, bombshell, they've got him now. Look what they found out. They found the proof. They've really, when was the last time they threw on him in jail? (laughs) You know what's happened? Almost like a rope that has had slack built into it you can pull on that rope. You can go through the proper means to try to effectuate some justice in society. But like a rope that is tied to a bell at the other end, but is given miles of slack, you can pull on the rope, but you'll never ring the bell. Judgment doth never go forth. I got news for you. Hey, listen, they've learned they can get away with anything. So you know what they're going to do? Anything they want. That's the society that we're living in today. Righteous men are outnumbered by unrighteous people. I'll tell you something I've had to come to terms with in adulthood is we like, we've been sold this thing about the silent majority. That was a big thing back in the 70s. They talk about the silent majority, the silent majority. I tell you, I think a lot of that was just placating society as it transformed because the hard truth and reality, you walk up and down the streets, man, you talk to people, you get on social media. Uh, people that believe in the word of God are not in the majority in this country anymore. A lot of what we're seeing in our society is exactly what Habakkuk saw. He said this, The wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceeded. You know why we feel so out of place in this world? Because our place isn't in this world. And we look around and, and we see the same thing Habakkuk saw. And he was troubled because he was living in a society that was plagued with unrighteousness and sin. Now, God's answer is interesting to this. I'll not take the time to read all of it. We've already read it. But in verses 5 through 11, God gives answer to Habakkuk that he has a sovereign plan to deal with this sin problem. Now, in regards to the unrighteousness that was pervasive in Judah, In that day, here's what he says. He said, I raise up in verse 6 the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. God says, Habakkuk, I'm outraged by society's sin too. And I have a plan for how to address that sin. You know, it's a reminder to us that we have a holy God. God is, is, is offended at unrighteousness. And God is concerned with unrighteousness. And God has a plan for how to deal with unrighteousness. Habakkuk sitting back and saying, God, ain't you going to get them? God says, oh yes, of course I am Habakkuk. Of course I'm going to judge sin. You know, the whole reason you and I came to Christ, we've been saved, is we believe that God was going to judge sin. We knew and understood from the truth of the Word of God that we would not get away with rejecting Christ and with living in unrighteousness, that our sin problem had to be dealt with. Now, I'm happy to report that God's sovereign plan uh, for Judah is, uh, is only part of the plan that God had for the world at large. God is going to judge the unrighteousness of this world, but I'm thankful to report that before we ever have to meet the judgment of God, God has already poured out His judgment upon Jesus Christ on Calvary. And if we're willing to come to Jesus Christ, then that judgment that would one day be poured out upon us will instead have been poured out upon Him. Now this presents a whole new problem for Habakkuk. And I just want to mention it and move on because this isn't supposed to be an exposition of the book of Habakkuk. We've got that online. You can go back and look it up. You can find where we've taught it in detail. But this does present a problem for Habakkuk. And again, this isn't part of our lesson tonight, but I want to mention it so you understand a little bit of what's going on in chapter two, because Habakkuk essentially looks at the Lord in the closing verses of this chapter and, and says, well, God, how are you going to use an unrighteous nation to judge an unrighteous nation? You're of purer eyes than to behold uncleanness in God. How could you use the Chaldeans? They're worse than the people of Judah are. And this, of course, deepens his crisis of faith that he experiences, and that's Largely what the rest of the book of Habakkuk is occupied with is Habakkuk trying to understand how it is just for God to use an unrighteous nation to judge an unrighteous nation. Or or more appropriately put, to use an unrighteous nation to judge a nation that though unrighteous is at least more righteous than the nation being used to judge them. And God's answer to Habakkuk is simply uh, that of course he's going to judge the Babylonians as well and uh, you know, you can go back and you can study in your Bible. God kept his word, kept his promise. He always does. He judges Judah through the Babylonians when Nebuchadnezzar uh, in about 596 sacks Jerusalem uh, for the final time. Nebuchadnezzar marched against Jerusalem on three separate occasions. And uh, he finally, and I think, and I might have my dates a little off here, but I think in about 596, he finally sacked Jerusalem altogether and burned it to the ground. And that was the state that the repatriates founded in when they come back 70 years later. And God, of course, did judge the Babylonians. The Medo-Persians came in and, and, you know, uh, rerouted the, you know, Tigris River or the Euphrates River, rather. And and went under the walls there at, at Babylon and, and uh, fell upon them on that feast night when uh, Belshazzar is, is having the feast and the handwriting appears on the wall. All this is chronicled for you in the Word of God and secular history agrees to it. Not that we need it to, but uh, incidentally it does. God kept all of his promises that he, that he gave to Habakkuk. But I want you to notice the place that Habakkuk finds himself in verse 12. Now, remember, he said, God, Judah is wicked. There's a sin problem in the world and in society. What are you going to do about it? God says, I'm going to judge sin. Those two truths, those two pillars provide for us the initial basis for our understanding of our situation and of who God is. That we are sinners, that we are unrighteous, that there is a sin problem in society, but more than that, there's a sin problem in our life, and that something must be done about it because God is holy and He will judge sin. Though Habakkuk doesn't get into all the details, he does note that a relationship with God preempts the judgment of God being in force in a person's life. Look at verse 12. He speaks of the saving pardon of God. He says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them, the Babylonians, for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Now, again, it's almost implicit, and we'll spend time tomorrow night looking at it in detail in the book of Romans. But the book of Romans, particularly the first four chapters, could largely be summarized by the same summary summary that we've given to Habakkuk's situation. Paul in chapter number one deals with the fact that the world has a sin problem. Chapter number two, he deals with the fact that religion and self-righteousness cannot rectify this. In chapter three, he deals with the fact that it's not a Jew and Gentile thing, but that the whole world is guilty before God. And chapter number four, he deals with the fact, or really the close of chapter three into chapter four, that the only answer to this is for man to be set in a right position with God or justified. By the way, let me give you a good modern definition of justified, all right? This is the reason I give this because a lot of people understand it. If you've worked with computers any or with a word processor of any kind, Microsoft Word or anything like that, or whatever you weird Apple people use, if you've done that... (laughs) Uh, you might have have seen there's a little button on that word processor, and actually there'll be about four of them. Uh, there'll be a little button you can click, and it'll have little squiggly lines on it. And one of the buttons, all the lines will line up on the left side, and then they'll be different on the right side. Another button, it'll uh, be lined up in the middle, but all the outside edges will be different. A third one, it will line up on the right side, but all the ones on the left side will start at different places. And then there will be one where both sides will be completely even. Those are called your justify buttons. And what they are, there's justified left. It sets everything at a right position to the left. Justified center sits everything at a right position in the center. Justified right sits it at the right. Now, I like that last one, justify all. Because that's how, when I got saved, I got justified all. And that sets all the different boundaries at the right position. To be justified means to be put in a right position with God to have a right relationship with Him. And Paul will deal with in detail how that is only through a right relationship with God, which can only be achieved and accomplished through faith in Him, that a man can be spared of the judgment of God. Now, Habakkuk doesn't deal with all that in such detail, but he does show us an example. Because he does not in this point say, well, hurry up, let's run to the temple and begin to sacrifice. He does not say, well, maybe we can somehow rectify this situation in our society and prove to God that in some means or in some way we are deserving of His mercy. Instead, Habakkuk rests upon the relationship that existed between him as an individual and God. And he interprets God's actions through the prism and lens of that relationship. He says, you know, God, hearing you say that you're going to bring the Babylonians down on this nation is a terrifying prospect, but because you're from everlasting, because you're holy, because you never change, because you've made promises to us through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because you are a keeper of promises, we shall not die. And it must mean that these things that you have permitted in our life, you have done this, that you might judge our lives and that you might correct us, but you are not condemning us to damnation because by faith I'm trusting in what you've said, and in your promise to be the shield against your wrath. You see, in many ways, in chapter 1, he is speaking to what Paul has dealt with in Romans chapter 1. Now, look with me in chapter 2 at our text. We could spend time looking at the entirety of chapter two, but I'll go ahead and and tell you that uh, really from from verse four down to the end of the chapter, what you really, or from verse five down to the end of the chapter, what you really have is Habakkuk under prophetic utterance, pronouncing woes upon the Chaldeans. And in chapter two, you really have the voice of God declaring all the reasons He's going to judge the Babylonians for their sin in in in, uh, you know uh, violence against the Jewish people. But in the first four verses, we find Habakkuk still struggling with how to respond to this truth that he's been given. I mean, he's doing pretty good, verse 12 of chapter number one. He's trusting in the Lord. But as he begins to weigh on the fact that these unrighteous men seem to be being permitted to persist in their unrighteousness, he's left with this simple question, what then am I supposed to do? I tell you, we better learn and we better settle on what our responsibilities are living in such a broken world. And I'm glad to report to you, the Word of God is not without clear instruction as to what the believer is to do in living in this wicked world as we sojourn through it. Paul will deal with this in detail in Galatians, uh, really the entirety of the book of Galatians, but but particularly in in chapters 2, 3, and 4, as he begins to talk about the role of faith in the life of a saved individual as they walk with God. But I just want you to notice how Habakkuk responds to this wicked society he's living in and to his role and place within it. Verse number 1, he says this of chapter 2. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now, again, I'll remind you, Habakkuk is a man that doesn't understand the things that's taking place around him. I will tell you that as believers, we often don't understand the things we're going through. I mean, if you've figured out a way to figure it out, please let me know so I can have it figured out. There's times that I look at how wickedness is allowed to persist and prevail in society, and I'm troubled by it. And I sometimes ask myself, Lord, what's my role and what's my responsibility? Now, Bacchus in the same situation. He can't figure the world out and he can't figure God out. And so what is he to do? Well, notice the first thing he does in verse 1. We see his supplication. Here's what he does. He prays and he waits on God. Prayer in and of itself intrinsically, natively, is an exercise in faith. You cannot pray in sincerity and not pray in faith. The very act of praying is an exercise in faith. And here's what Habakkuk says. He says, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what God's doing or why God's not doing more. But rather than shake my fist at God, rather than give up, rather than throw in the towel and turn around and walk away, rather than hide myself in some cave like a hermit and quit on society, I'm going to pray and ask God to instruct me into how I am to live. In our lives, uh, there is a great push I think today, and I understand it because I feel it within me to just want to just get away from all of everything <laughs> around us. There's not a one of us that hasn't probably said at some point, man, I just love to live so, so far away from it all. I didn't have to deal with it, didn't have to face it, didn't have to endure and experience it. And sometimes as we live in society, we can, if we're not careful, we can, we can mentally and emotionally check out. God's not called us, He's not called us to check into this world system, but He's also not called us to check out of our role and responsibility in reaching this world. Habakkuk very easily could have walked away from it all, but he did the right thing. And in your life and my life, when we don't understand what to do, you say, Preacher, what do I do? I remember hearing an evangelist say years ago, it always stuck with me, he said, when you don't know what to do, do what you know to do until you find out what to do. In other words, when it's tempting to quit and to walk away, to give up on this weird experiment that they call society, to try to just hide and, and and you know, seclude ourselves away and say, just forget every bit of it. The right thing to do instead is to stop and say, Lord, I don't understand, I'm struggling, but I trust you, and I know you have a plan and a purpose for my life. Habakkuk doesn't know what to do, but rather than getting angry at God, he says, I will stop and I will wait and I will trust that God will answer me. We see his supplication in verse number 1. Verse 2, the Lord tells him what to do. The Lord answered me, Habakkuk says, and this is what God said to him. Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Now, commentators have sort of disagreed and fussed and argued about what exactly is meant here. And I'll give you my opinion uh, because it is always correct. Um, (laughs) I think when the Lord says, write the vision, he's talking about the book of Habakkuk and this vision that contains a woe to the Babylonians, but a warning to the people of God likewise. And understand that, you know, the children of Israel, they persisted in their unrighteousness until they they passed a breaking point. And there's actually, when you study the Old Testament prophets, there's times, and the book of Jeremiah is a good example of this. You know, Jeremiah was despised as a prophet, because he was his message, and I try to remind myself of this, because sometimes I have to preach hard messages, but I ain't never had to preach a message as hard as, as Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah's message to the people of Judah was, give up and don't fight the Babylonians, because God's going to use them to destroy you. Just trust God and go on, because if you try to resist them, they're going to annihilate you. Man, I've had some hard sermons before, but I've never had to give a sermon like that. And when he tells Habakkuk to write this vision, to make it plain upon tables, tables or tablets, something that people can read, that he may run, that readeth it. He's saying that they may take warning and that they may flee for their life. Here's what I'm getting at. This was a hard thing God was asking. Habakkuk would not have won any popularity contests after this point. If he had been somebody's favorite prophet leading up to this, I promise you he fell in ranking after the book of Habakkuk was written. But nonetheless, God has a task for him to do. And Habakkuk is called to serve even when he's struggling. I'll give you a real truth. We don't just get to serve God when we feel like it. If you serve God only when you feel like it, you'll only do small things for him. And I'm not trying to suggest that there's a nobility to suffering. But I am saying that God gets the most out of us when the most is being squeezed out of us. And in our life, if we're not careful, we will try to Pigeonhole God only into the convenient days and the easy boxes of our life. And Habakkuk teaches us that if we're going to serve God, it's going to be an exercise of faith in serving Him. Habakkuk's very service was an expression of faith. By writing this prophecy down, he was declaring God to be true and every man a liar. By writing this prophecy down, he was trusting the Lord that it would be brought to fulfillment and brought to pass and he would not be made a fool. And by writing this down, he was trusting that God would protect and preserve him from those that would despise him for the message he was tasked to carry. You know, when you study the book of Galatians, one of the things that Paul emphasizes, and we read it earlier when we read our text out of that passage, he talks about how they had begun in faith. Why would they be made perfect through the flesh? In other words, saying, The very basis and foundation of your relationship with God was faith. How incongruent is it? How inconsistent is it that God would begin a work in you in faith only to finish it through the energies of your flesh? He's trying to get them to understand that this thing of walking by faith It's not just for superstar Christians. It's the meat and potatoes of the Christian experience. And Habakkuk reveals to us that even times when it's not easy, times when we struggle, times when it's a battle uphills both ways, knee deep in the snow, we still serve God because we do it by faith. There are a great many people that only serve God with feeling. And when it don't feel like serving God, they just don't feel like serving God. They'll only live for Him when things are smooth and when things are simple. But Habakkuk says the life that God calls us to, calls us to serve him even when we're struggling. Habakkuk's not in a good frame of mind when God gives him this command. But you know what we have? We have the book of Habakkuk. You know what that tells me? It tells me he obeyed even when he didn't feel like it. So we see even his service to be an exercise of faith. And then look at verses uh, or verse number 3. The Bible says this, For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Many years would pass between the giving of the prophecy of Habakkuk and the fulfilling of the prophecy of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, no doubt, would spend many years of his life uh, living with the reproach and the scorn of the people around him. One of the things that seems to be common in Judah in the days leading up to the captivity was a willful societal denial of what a precarious situation they were in. I mean, you know, I mean, you under you understand like they're they're eating and drinking and making merry and given in marriage all the way up till the gates of Jerusalem are burnt. I mean, they were, and it's interesting because if you study the book of Daniel, Daniel and his companions, I told you there were three times that Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. The first time he laid siege to Jerusalem, he was actually not the emperor of the Babylonian Empire. He wasn't the king at that time. His uh, father, uh, uh, I think Nabopolassar, but I might have that wrong. Don't Google it, amen, or you'll find out I'm wrong. It'll break your heart. Uh, but his father, it might be Nebuchadrezzar, or as well, there were several of them right there that had, you know, they, they all named their kids the same things. And um, his father was the king, and his his father died, and he was called back from the siege of Jerusalem to go to contend his his throne and to secure his place as the king over the Babylonians. And so that first time that he laid siege, when they left. They didn't burn the walls. They just took, the Bible says, all the seed royal of Judah back with them. That's when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were were taken back to Babylon because they were of the seed royal of Judah. And yet we find even after that, Judah did not change her ways. Nebuchadnezzar comes back, lays siege again, and really properly destroys the temple and pillages the temple. And Judah still did not change. And a third time, he finally comes back and raises the city to the ground. Here's what I'm getting at. I'm saying Habakkuk gives this prophecy and people don't change their ways. They continue to live under the delusion that nothing is wrong, that there is no problem. And imagine how difficult that must have been for Habakkuk. Imagine how tempted he was to give up, to quit, to just throw in the towel. But here in verse 3, we see his steadfastness in faith. God says, don't give up Habakkuk, keep trusting me, keep standing for me. Verse four that contains sort of this key phrase, Habakkuk decides this about his situation. He says, behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. He'll go on to describe the behavior of unrighteous men in the remainder of chapter number two. But he makes his mind up about his life in verse four. And he says this, though all of society may go the way of hell, I will not. Though all of society may continue to degrade and decline and be degenerate and depraved, I will not. I will by faith walk with God. In other words, we see his sanctification in verse number four. And his separation, he says, I won't go with that crowd. Paul in the book of Galatians will encourage the believers at Galatia to not yield to the Judaizers, but to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. And he knows that's going to separate them from some that live unrighteously, and it's going to separate them from some that live self-righteously. But he says, by faith, you are called upon to maintain a proper relationship with the Lord. Look in chapter three with me of Habakkuk. We'll give one final little thought here and then be done. I got to hurry. I can't let you out later than the kids, or they'll burn the place to the ground. in chapter number three, we find a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shiginoth, which was a, a musical annotation uh, that would have been used on high feast days. And where does Habakkuk land at the end of all this? He says this in verse two, O Lord, I have heard thy speech, and was afraid, O Lord, revive thy work. In the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. Now I told you that each of these portions in each of these chapters in Habakkuk serve for us and provide for us in germ form the thesis and the arguments that'll be made later on in these other corresponding passages. And in Romans chapter one, we talked about the pardon of faith. In chapter one, uh, Habakkuk rests in the relationship that he has with God and the pardon he has secured from him. Chapter number 2, Habakkuk is convinced concerning the practice of faith and that though society is continuing to decline and degrade, he as a just man will live by faith and walk in righteousness. And that corresponds to Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. But here in chapter 3, we find the power of faith on display. Habakkuk has gotten victory over his crisis. And he makes some remarkable statements about how he operating in faith is going on for God and his purpose to see God get victory in his life, even if God doesn't get it in the lives of his countrymen. This, of course, corresponds to Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, and more largely to Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith. In the first two verses, here's what we see Habakkuk doing. We see him by faith seeking God. Now that, excuse me, that may seem like a simplistic proposition. Well, sure, preacher, yeah, he's praying and he's saying, Lord, work and Lord, move. But understand that Habakkuk has just been told that God's judgment is inexorable. That God has determined upon Judah judgment. God is so far ahead of where they're at. He hasn't just pronounced Judah uh, judgment upon Judah. He's pronounced judgment upon the people that he's going to use to bring judgment upon Judah. If ever there was a time when a man could have looked and said, well, might as well throw in the towel. It's all done now. It was Habakkuk at this moment in Israel's history. I'll tell you one of my pet peeves in Christianity today. I'm a dispensationalist. I I, I believe that's the appropriate prism through which to view the word of God. And uh, and I'm a premillennialist uh that doesn't bother me to say i hope it doesn't bother you to hear uh, even if it bothers you to hear it doesn't bother me to hear to that you're bothered to hear when i say i'm a premillennialist and i believe that yes the first 3 chapters of the book of revelation provide for us if not a template certainly an analysis of the course of a people's once the gospel has entered into their world and And provide in many ways a, a striking parallel between what Christianity has done, particularly in the West, in its march through various civilizations and oftentimes you 'll hear people talk about that they 'll talk about you know the church at Ephesus being the New testament church and they 'll go on they 'll talk about the Church at Smyrna, the persecuted church and they 'll talk about the church at, at pergamus the, the the Church of state marriage, you know whenever the Catholics uh, you know sort of co opted Christianity in a cultural sense. And they'll talk about, you know, and on and on they'll go and they'll come down to the church at Laodicea. And they'll talk about how the church at Laodicea characterizes the end-time apostasy. And I believe that's true. I see that around. But you know, one of the things that bothers me is some people take this thing of a, of a, a Laodicean diagnosis of Christianity as an excuse and a, and a pathway towards fatalism in their Christian worldview. And there's this attitude like, well, it's just, you know, we're just living in Laodicean days. Ain't nothing we can do. Man, I don't see anywhere in my Bible that God tells the church to just throw in the towel and quit trying for Him. I don't see anywhere where God says, well, you know, society's just a wreck. Don't worry. And Habakkuk, if there was ever a man that could have said, God's judgment is appointed, we might as well just go home and forget about this whole thing, it would have been Habakkuk. But here's what we see him doing. We see him saying, oh, Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. He's he's seeking the Lord by faith in God's character. He knows what God has said. He is terrified at what God has proclaimed. He's not denying or dismissing what God has has determined upon Judah. But he's saying, God, I know you and I know you love us. And I know you're a God of mercy. And even though you have to pour out your wrath, I pray there'd be a faithful remnant and that in your wrath you would remember mercy. Hey, listen, faith. And you look through the Old Testament, and you'll find example after example of people who, in moments of desperation, and like Abraham himself—I love this phrase in the book Romans—who against hope believed in hope. When there was nothing to hope in, he hoped in the fact that God is a God of hope. And here we see Habakkuk by faith seeking God, even though things seemed the darkest. Look with me at verse number three. In fact, we'll do a little bit of reading here. Don't get don't get nervous. We'll hurry. Amen. But Listen to what he says beginning in verse 3. Habakkuk sees a vision and he says this, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are regions in Edom. He says, His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. And His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand and there was the hiding of His power. Before Him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride upon thine horses, and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes. Even thy words say Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee and they trembled. The overflowing of water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck, Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops." Now, there's a lot of very flowery language there, but here's what's happening. Habakkuk is being permitted to have a vision of the battle of Armageddon. He's seeing the day when God will strike down the armies of the Antichrist and when he'll march through this world in victory and in triumph. He's literally seeing the judgment of God being poured out upon the nations writ large. And here's what we see in these verses. In verses 1 and 2, we see him by faith seeking God. But in verse number three, down to verse number 16, we see him by faith seeing God. The Bible describes in Hebrews chapter number 11, Abraham seeing the coming promised city of God, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and by faith seeing these things come to pass. Now, what all Abraham may have saw by avenue of vision, I do not know. But I do know that the very conduct of Abraham's life reveals to us that Abraham saw the things that God declared as being reality. That is faith in its very essence. Seeing what God has declared and not hoping it to be true, but knowing it to be true and responding in an appropriate manner. And here Habakkuk, he goes beyond just hoping God will work and now he's seeing God bring about righteousness in the world You know, part of New Testament Christianity and walking by faith is not just seeking for God to work, but trusting that He will. Seeing and and believing and behaving in such a way as to, to say with firm confidence that God is a keeper of promises, that He is a keeper of oaths, that the things that He has said are true and that no lie is possible from Him. It's reason Paul will say in Hebrews chapter number 10, cast not away therefore your confidence which hath a great recompense of reward. He said, God worked in your life because you saw by faith the promises of God to be true and actual. I want you notice a final little phrase here and then we'll be done in Habakkuk chapter number 3. Notice the way that this little Old Testament prophecy ends. Verse 17, this is what, this is what Habakkuk declares. He says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stall. I don't know if you've read any of the latest economic reports, but uh, they're pretty dismal, but they're not as as bleak as what Habakkuk sees there. He says, if I get to the place, man, where I got nothing in the pantry, no no livestock in the barn, if it gets so bad that there's no fig trees, no fruit in the vines, no olives in the in the trees, the fields yield no meat. In other words, he's saying, I've been so convinced of God's truth that even if everything fell apart, he says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He says, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like Hind's feet. And he will, that's, A hind is a deer, <laughs> like hind's feet. Man, I've seen deer jump things that was three times their height. It says, he'll make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. In other words, we see Habakkuk in chapter number 3, and he is by faith seeking God, and he is by faith seeing God. But when he closes out the, the book, he is by faith finding strength in God. And here's what he's learned. He's learned that his worldview is not defined by his circumstances. It is defined by the character and promise of God. That even if everything that he interacts with seems to be contrary to what God has promised, he will call his very eyes themselves liars and he will rest in what God has said. See, here's the truth. God didn't save you so the, then you could go on and live in your own strength and intuition. God set you, and I believe when a person is born again, I believe when they believe in Jesus Christ, I believe they are saved instantaneously, permanently, and exhaustively. I don't believe they're put on a down payment plan. I think it's paid in full. But I will tell you that when you got saved, you certainly were placed upon a journey of faith. It was not just you took a leap in the dark and now you've got a seat in heaven. You began a relationship of dependence upon God. The New Testament will go on to detail each of these greatly about how we, uh, in faith, find pardon and how we practice our faith and how we see the power of faith at work in our lives. But before we get to any of that this week, can I just point to an Old Testament prophet who in his own crisis of faith learned this, that faith in the Lord was enough. That if he could just learn to trust God, that God would see him through and that God would meet his needs. Let's bow together and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, I love you. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, thank you that it's rich. Thank you that it's what we need. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to take this not just as an academic exercise, Lord, but as as you speaking to our hearts and help us that the word of God may be engrafted in us. Lord, that we may take it to heart and practice it, perform it and make it precious to us. Lord, I pray you'd bless the remainder of our vacation Bible school. Give every one of the teachers the unction and help and power that they need, Lord. I pray we'd see souls, fruit for our labor this week, and I pray that you'd be pleased in all that's said and all that's done. Lord, I love you. Pray that you'd give us a good rest of the night and good rest of the week. We ask it in Christ's name.